can't do reading and thinking at the same time. Oh, what a male brain I have. Standard Issue for All Women. Hello and welcome to episode 144 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and the telegraph from our Bush Telegraph sting is currently in my house. It's like you've got a famous person with you. Does she get recognised on the street? Yeah, that's why she's had to come and hide here. Huh. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I didn't watch the news for a week and it was fucking incredible. Tell me more. Tell oh, me more. It was amazing. I'm so jealous. It was amazing. Later on, Hazel Davis has a natter with poet, author, activist, goddess, Selena Godden, about her debut novel, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, which has already been snapped up for film and telly by Idris Elba. Ooh. Ooh. Jen chats to Amy Thompson, founder of the Moody Month app, about her new book, Moody, A Woman's 21st Century Hormone Guide. And in Rated or Dated, we choose train spotting to find out if it too has got old and can they hack it anymore. Oh, I don't know how to feel about that attempt, Hannah. <laughs> I think it's because you're pronouncing it in a very English way. Can it hack it anymore? Can it hack it anymore? Okay. Cue complaints from anyone with <laughs> any sort of connection to Scotland, and rightly so. But first, the gig economy, horrible stats and appalling sentences. Not ours like, they are beautifully constructed. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Mary. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, coming to you from a huge underground roundabout beneath the Isle of Man. It's it's weird under here. I don't know how <laughs> I feel about it. Uh, it's just the Brexit bunker that Boris Johnson's been talking about. Uh, it's his latest idea on how to... I, I don't know. I don't... I don't know that I'm going to allow you the word idea there, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, let's have a chat about the gig economy and the army of people who have been driving us places and bringing us things and without whom lots of people wouldn't have been able to have safe lives in the last year. Mm -hmm. Why do I bring this up? Other than I'm enjoying a nice cup of tea, all the elements of which were bought to my front door by a variety of nice people that get paid a lot less than me. And I think we could all do with being reminded of this. Absolutely. And also because Uber... The taxi app recently lost its High Court appeal against the landmark employment tribunal ruling that its drivers should be classed as workers with access to the minimum wage and paid holidays. You know, treat them like they were a fellow human being, what? not just a piece of meat keeping the service going long enough for driverless cars to become a viable option. Six justices handed down a unanimous decision backing the October 2016 employment tribunal ruling. It could leave Uber with a big compensation payout to make and, here's where the news gets even better, lead to improved terms for millions of people working for other companies using the gig economy in the UK. Good stuff. Uber had argued, like many delivery and courier companies do, that drivers are independent, self-employed partners. <laughs> and can I just say, please do fuck off with that word. Yeah. This, the company believes, means that they aren't entitled to basic rights enjoyed by other workers, which include legally enforceable minimum hourly wage and a workplace pension. And, like I said, Uber isn't out of step with the rest of the whole rotten industry in that regard. Mm -hmm. The ruling states that Uber must consider drivers as workers from the time they log on to the app until they log off. Just to clarify here, workers are different to employees, so drivers wouldn't be entitled to, for example, maternity pay or to challenge unfair dismissal. But it is a huge improvement, as the following quote shows. James Farrer, the co-lead claimant and general secretary of the App Drivers and Couriers Union, said, quote, This ruling will fundamentally reorder the gig economy and bring an end to rife exploitation of workers by means of algorithmic and contract trickery. Uber drivers are cruelly sold a false dream of endless flexibility and entrepreneurial freedom. The reality has been illegally low pay, dangerously long hours and intense digital surveillance. I am delighted that workers at least have some remedy because of this ruling, but the government must urgently strengthen the law so that gig workers may also have access to sick pay and protection from unfair dismissal. I don't think I've got anything to add to that. That seems to say it all. Definitely. The sentence, 
that Uber must consider drivers as workers. It's just outrageous that this mm. has had to be decided by a court. Yeah. It's mad. Yeah. As ever, we are recording on Monday. So given the roadmap <laughs> out of lockdown isn't officially announced until seven o'clock tonight, despite being everywhere already, presumably so the government can gauge response and prep answers to questions. Prep, what am I saying? <laughs> as if? Anyway, instead, I'm going to talk about a couple of grim realities the pandemic has shone a very stark light upon. New research has shown that deaths among homeless in the UK spiked by more than a third in 2020. Now, figures around people dying while homeless are sketchy to say the least, which means anything they come up with is always going to be an underestimate. I chatted to the excellent journalist Maeve McLenaghan about this back in October, as when she discovered there weren't any existing stats for the number of people dying homeless on Britain's streets, she started collating them. Her book, No Fixed Abode, is a must-read on this. The Museum of Homelessness has recorded 976 deaths across England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland last year, and that marks a 37% increase in the number of fatalities reported in 2019. The high rates come despite the success of everyone in. What was that? That is the government scheme which provided emergency hotel accommodation to roughly 15,000 homeless people throughout the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic and, according to one study, prevented an estimated 266 deaths. That said, obviously people were missed. Just before the current lockdown hit, I chatted to a man living on the streets and he said he'd not been placed during any of the previous lockdowns, but was hopeful because he was on the waiting list for the next one. And of course, everyone in is a laudable scheme and I'm, I'm really, really glad it exists. But it doesn't take into account the series of swathing cuts made to Britain's welfare, addiction, mental health and housing services pre-pandemic. Cuts that are always going to add to the number of people living and dying homeless on our streets. On a similar front, COVID's also made even clearer the full bullshit of universal credit. Horrific when it was brought in, horrific now. I mean, I could wang on about how women in coercive or abusive relationships suffer even harder under universal credit because the cash goes directly to the breadwinner, thus making financial independence and escape even tougher to imagine. But instead, I'll point out that a new study has found that many people claiming universal credit for the first time during this pandemic have been unable to put aside enough cash to save even £10 a month, to eat healthily or regularly or to pay bills because the benefit payment was inadequate to meet basic living costs. The study, carried out by researchers at five universities for the Welfare at a Social Distance project, calls for a rethink of what it terms, and I can only assume that this is said while pulling a face, the generosity <laughs> of the social security system. A spokesperson said, Our evidence suggests that even with the £20 uplift, benefit levels are inadequate. In the longer term, there is a need for a wider consideration of the adequacy of the benefit system. I mean, yes, yes. Jesus. Do you want some good news, Mick? Yes, please. Holy fuck, yes. Um, when I say good news, I mean actual good news for me and you and not I found something about the survival of the lesser spotted corncrake. Do you have corncrake news as well, though? Uh, and although by good news, I mean Boris Johnson has said something. So oh. should I just get on with it? Get on with it, yep. Our inglorious leader has said that all adults in the UK will be offered a COVID vaccination by July the 31st. Hooray. Hooray? Or is it? I don't know. I'm interested in the selection of the word offered and the length of the period between being offered a vaccine <laughs> and actually getting it. But it does seem on the face of it, at the very least, a step in the right direction not least because I'm bored shitless of being inside. More news on this as it does or indeed doesn't actually happen. <laughs> and indeed, more news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we've been here before and we'll be here again. So forgive me if this new news feels very much like old news. Five days into the first lockdown, back on March the 28th, 2020, Anthony Williams killed Ruth Williams, his wife of 46 years. He attacked Ruth in her bedroom, chased her down the stairs and strangled her to death as she, desperately trying to escape, held door keys in her hand. Williams told police he literally choked the living daylights out of his wife Ruth. He broke five bones in her neck and he strangled her until her eyes bled. 
Still, it will no doubt, sadly, fury-makingly, come as absolutely no surprise for you to learn that Williams was cleared of murder and instead found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to just five years in prison. Why? Well, because a psychologist argued his anxiety, quote, was heightened because of lockdown, which impaired his ability to exercise self-control. Five days into lockdown. Williams will be out of prison in two and a half years max. And of course, like so many men who have committed domestic violence, committed domestic homicide, he told detectives that he just snapped. Ruth, and what I'm about to say is allegedly, since she can no longer speak for herself and say whether it's true or not, had told her husband Anthony to get over his five days into lockdown depression. This get over it that she apparently said, has featured in every single news report, as though it was some sort of obvious trigger for something so vastly disproportionate. It's also reported that Anthony Williams had not been violent before. We'll never know. And yet, the media's played its usual irresponsible role in the reporting of this crime. I saw the BBC file the story under COVID. I saw Williams described as a pensioner time and time again, but not 67-year-old Ruth. It's only raising detritus to make Williams seem a more fragile, sympathetic figure. But not Ruth. Five years out in two and a half feels even starker when you compare it to sentences handed down to women who kill their abusers. If you listened to last week's pod, you'll have heard Jen and I talking about women who kill, the new report from Justice for Women and the Centre for Women's Justice. Among the many findings of the research, the report reveals that 43% of women who kill men who have been abusive to them are convicted of murder, and 46% manslaughter. Of those convicted of manslaughter, the sentencing in many cases is in the region of 14 to 18 years. That's 14 to 18 years, not five. Mm. You can hear me talking more about this in a couple of weeks as I was lucky enough to grab time with the founder of the Centre for Women's Justice and incredible feminist lawyer Harriet Wistrich. With regard to the Anthony Williams sentencing, MP Harriet Harman has written to ask the Attorney General to refer this to the Court of Appeal as an unduly lenient sentence, which is, as far as I'm concerned, exactly as it should be. But there is so, so much work to be done to untangle the misogyny embedded within a legal system made by men for men. What I find really, I don't know, interesting, telling, depressing, use which word you want to. All of those words. (laughs) Is that... The only way that you could possibly agree that someone snapped and killed their wife and that was a justification and say it was manslaughter and be on a jury or or be the judge that dishes out that sort of sentence is if you can imagine you doing it or someone doing it to you. That to me is the, the fundamental depressing factor. If you're sitting there and thinking, well, he just snapped, I mean... It can only possibly be because you can put yourself in his shoes because I I just I just struggle to imagine it. I struggle to imagine what would the thing have to be that would make me go so wild that I did that. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I can't I can't imagine. So I struggle to understand the other people out there that are like, well, you know, I think that's quite reasonable because I I think Dave could go at any time and kill me. That's it, isn't it? But I mean, that is all part and parcel of that. We're still. You know, the law has changed dramatically in some ways, but there's still this sort of nagging and shagging justification for blokes killing their wives. Mm. It's still in the back of people's minds. She must have done something. And it's because the cliche is that men are volatile, but women are manipulative. So she'd have planned a murder. She'd have planned it. But he would have just spontaneously occurred to him. Yeah, it's fucked. That's my professional opinion. Introducing the No Fucks Given podcast with Sarah Knight. I'm the New York Times bestselling anti-guru behind some of your favorite sweary self-help books. You know the ones. And now I'm giving life-changing, no-bullshit advice on my brand new podcast every Tuesday in 2021. I'm going to teach you how to stop caring so much about what other people think and how to focus on what makes you happy. Less busy, more productive, less tired, more creative, maybe newly single, whatever happy means for you. No judgments here. I'll be talking mental health, motivation, boundaries, goal setting, confidence, and more. Just like my books, the podcast will be fun, sweary, and full of tips and techniques for living your best life. 
If that's not something you need to hear, especially this year, then I don't know what is. So come on, give it a shot. The No Fucks Given Podcast with Sarah Knight. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Hazel Davis and I'm talking to Selena Gordon. I looked you up on Wikipedia this morning and it said you're widely anthologised, which I really like, the widely anthologised Selena Gordon. But also you've been called the love child of Sylvia Plath and Richard Pryor, which is just the best possible way to introduce you. Who who called you that? Oh, that was a festival. They introduced me as that. I thought it was hilarious. I think it's the best intro I ever had. It's brilliant, and it re- but it really does sum you up because you are kind of poet, stand-up, writer. You're dark but funny. You're It's kind of everything, isn't it, actually? And so we're here to talk about your new book, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death, which is out now on Canongate. That was out at the end of January. It's kind of had an amazing reception, and Idris Elba has um, optioned it for film, I noticed this morning, which is kind of incredible. Yeah, that's that's just amazing. It's a dream come true. I, I can't wait to see how this work translates and how it how it vibrates on the screen and to see the characters come to life on screen. I'm very excited about that. It feels, I mean, it feels really filmic when you read it. Actually, you know, sometimes you read a book and you think the author has written this with a view to it being on screen. Were you thinking that when you were writing it at all? Someone else asked me that. I think Wolf, because uh, much of the narration comes from the voice of a young writer who's very much troubled and traumatised and tells much of the story as though as though Wolf is starring in Wolf's own movie. So I think that's why that feels like that, possibly. Yeah, it, it just feels like it's going to work really well on screen, so it's quite exciting. So to talk me through, I mean, Mrs Death, Mrs Death, talk me through who Mrs Death is. So Mrs Death is Death, okay. the boss of Death. She isn't the wife of Death or the mother of Death. She is Death itself. And she comes and walks amongst us as the invisible woman or the silenced woman or the the, the woman that we walk past, a working class, black, working woman, homeless woman, the backing singer we don't bother to learn the name of or the woman in the corner shop or the woman cleaning the floor in the in the hospital. I wanted to sort of make Mrs. Death be this this sort of unseen, and she shapeshifts into different different lives and um, and speaks through and to uh, Wolf Williford, who's a young writer. Slowly, without wanting to give too much away, their friendship blossoms, and uh, and in a way they they kind of help each other. And Death shows Wolf how to live. Wow. And you said in the book, the greatest trick man played was making you believe I was a man. That's that's Mrs. Death speaking, isn't it? How What does that mean for how we perceive death, how we have perceived death? Well, it's really important to say that when I started writing this book, I was in a place of anxiety and mourning and worry. And, and it's so strange that now as the book's published, I'm in a place of anxiety and mourning and worry and grief. Um, I'm laughing, but it, it's so strange to me. So I suppose what I was doing when I set out with this work was to humanise death and to make death a woman, to have conversations with death and to use the character of Wolf to ask the big questions and silly questions too, like do the dead go to their own funeral and and those kind of questions, as well as the bigger questions. It's quite interesting that you talk about personifying because you personified hope as a woman too in Pessimism is for Lightweights, didn't you? Is that's, That's kind of something that you do quite a lot. Yeah, I suppose so. I didn't need I suppose I did, didn't I? Yeah. I, I personified death as a woman and life, her sister, is a woman. Oh. But the, I think uh, Pessimism is for Lightweights came out whilst I was writing this book. I've been oh. writing this book in between jobs and over a good couple of years now. So Pessimism is for Lightweights and also my Livewire album all were being made whilst I was working on this in the background. Wow. Talk me through why the why the sort of what what that means for you. Why you personify things like hope and life and death? Is it because you're a poet? Is it you know that's what poets do, or is it because it helps you get to grips with things? Is that your your coping strategy? I wouldn't say it's a coping strategy. I think it's just my imagination. I mean, in the book, time is a man, mm. time is a capitalist, and time yeah. is a bit of a bully, actually. So <laughs> it's not always women. Um, yeah, time's a bad, a bad guy in the book. <laughs> and But death's not a bad guy, is she? Um, I think it depends how you look at it. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. I leave that. I leave that up to interpretation. Okay. Spoiler yeah, I don't want to give too much away as well. Yeah, I'm trying not to spoiler it too much. Although you do have a spoiler yes. alert at the start that says "spoiler alert: we all die in the end," which I really. This love. is true. The, the 
the book opens with a trigger warning, a disclaimer, and with a with with all the spoilers um, that this this book contains dead people. I think is the first line of the book. <laughs> you said you started writing it in a bad place, and and sorry to hear that you're in a bad place again. I think many people are, aren't they, at the moment? But I think yeah, I think so many of us are. It's a struggle. It's really important to get across that this book was written before the pandemic and already going to print, like before all of this. At time of writing, it was um, a book where there seemed to be a, a row of lots of funerals, lost family members and friends, and also worrying about Trump and worrying about, you know, ecocide and, the, you know, and all of that. So, you know, the pandemic wasn't even factored in at, at that point when I was writing it. So it's very strange oh, wow. to now have this extra really huge thing going on globally yeah have you kind of read it back since its publication and now we're in the pandemic and kind of thought you might do things differently or does it work because it seems to work right now to me I think there are some parts that are resonating for example the chapter we could be heroes where Mrs Death tells us that the heroes walk amongst us that the heroes are our doctors our teachers the heroes are our nurses, the people struggling in NHS, our heroes are artists that are making work with no funding, and truth seekers and people that are helping people, you know, that are drowning in the Mediterranean and refugees and people that are fighting to save the planet. I mean, Mrs. Death isn't here for the death of death. And so there's a really strong message there. Although death is death, death doesn't want to destroy everything to be so destroyed that even death dies, right? This book's been a, a long, slow marinate, marinating one. I mean, some of the sections were written as far back as 2011, but then it's really started picking up and making a really good shape from about 2015. So that's a, that's a long time writing and rewriting it and making it the book that I wanted to make. And it's a really unusual and ambitious structure. Did you did you kind of have any pushback on that? Or because of who you are, it was kind of that was just the structure that it always had to be. I handed in a finished book. Often as writers were asked to submit three sample chapters, for example. I, I didn't do that. I handed in something that I felt was very finished and complete and the structure was there. It does have lots of different types of writing styles from poetry, newspaper, articles and prose and letter writing and diary writing. And I wanted that to feel like that because as Mrs. Death, her head, Mrs. Death is hearing all of people's last confessions and regrets, people's last thoughts, last letters. And so this is how she would be getting the information from different people that are that are dying or, or yeah, their last words sort of thing. Oh, wow. That's that's really interesting. And that, that kind of speaks to who you are as well, because, you you know, it's, it's difficult to say that you're a poet or, you know, because you're kind of poet, stand-up, musical artist, sometimes narrator. You're kind of all of those things yourself as well. Did it kind of appeal to different aspects of your performance style as well? I suppose so, but quite a lot of the pieces that that are now poems started off as newspaper articles or they started off as, you know, I changed and switched and edited and played with it a lot. Uh, for example, the Sarah Reed chapter and the Australia chapter mm-hmm. were newspaper articles that, that I chopped and, and edited and, and did that sort of cut and paste kind of William Burroughs thing. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of play, a lot of experimental and play, and I hope that that playfulness comes across. Definitely. Well, I think it does in, in all your work generally. You're kind of really known for having like for treating really dark subjects or taboo subjects with humour. And that's is that is that something you've always done? I think so. It's not an intentional thing or a provocative thing. I think it's just how it's just my sense of humour is quite dark, perhaps. And also the way there's so much that isn't said with with death and with big subjects. It's not so much what is being said, it's what's being said in the silences that interests me. Yeah, definitely. And I really love the bit that where you have a massive dig at publishing PR, which I just think I found it really funny, given that we're you obviously <laughs> kind of doing the uh, the book PR rounds at the moment. How are you finding that? Is that is that difficult for you? Is it given that you had a massive dig at them? <laughs> That was only a joke, but yeah, I do kind of go into one about, are you talking about the vampire blood bank thing? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I forgot about that. Um, that's not really a dig, it's just, just kind of joking about, there's also a, a dig about how the front cover would be a seven foot Grace Jones character because Mrs. Death is black. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, this kind of idea of the sort of angry black woman mm. sort of playing, you know, 
digging at that a little bit, maybe. Yeah, I I don't know. I I just tell it like it is or how I see it, I guess. (laughs) And what's kind of next? Are you you looking to do more novels like this or working on the film stuff or back to poetry? What's your kind of current project or next project? I'm not allowed to talk about what I'm doing next. Oh no! Is it it's really not exciting? allowed. Is no, it really no, you can't get it out of me. No, I do, kind of, I kind of think I kind of like to keep myself on my toes and also keep people that are into my work on their toes. You never really know what's going to come next with me, you know. And I kind of like that. I don't like everyone. I like to sort of, you know, whether it'll be, you know, whether it's albums or music or filmy stuff or poetry or I like to to keep switching it up my thing is as well is when something starts to feel like homework Mm. or like work then I will go and work on something else behind my own back (laughs) that's kind of how Mrs Death came about to be honest because I was working on Pessimism is for Lightweights I was working on Livewire I was working on The Good Immigrant all that kind of stuff so behind and between those jobs I'm going oh I can't be asked I'm going to work on my novel so this is this is one of those those projects and things where I'm just quietly you know getting up at four in the morning and and enjoying the indulgence of just working on something for me that I want to write sometimes being a writer can feel like being a baker and people ordering in pizza Mm. um you know and you're trying to write to to certain time lengths or certain constrictions of the theme of a project and so yeah so this was one where I just had free reign to write from the heart and something I felt and something you know and I was something I was sad about or angry about or, or had love for that's a really lovely way of describing it so thank you very much Tom it's really great to talk to you where can we find you if you do you want people to look you out on Twitter or read your book give us a bit of a promo for where we can find you <laughs> you can find me um I'm on Twitter at Selena Godden and I'm on Instagram at selena.godden you can find me there excellent we will thank you so much for time it's been really nice to talk to you and the book's fantastic so everyone should go and buy it now thank you so much Hazel thank, thank you, you. I'm joined by Amy Thompson, founder of the Moody Month app and author of the new book, Moody, A Woman's 21st Century Hormone Guide. Hello, Amy. Hi, how are you doing? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? Been Zooming all morning. Yeah, the relentless fatigue is officially starting to kick in. (laughs) (laughs) So I imagine you've been pretty busy on your Zoom chatting to people like me about your new book, Moody, which, as the subtitle suggests, is about hormones and how we can harness the power of them. So it's based on a personal experience that that you had, right? So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what happened to you and, and how that inspired the book. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, it's an incredibly topical moment to be talking about how our bodies actually work and mm. why we want to understand more about them. Even fatigue actually is a hormonal experience after a while. So. What happened to me was burnout and that, again, with all the different emotions that go with it, is a very broad topic. So people talk about it in kind of emotional terms, in technical terms. But what was fascinating to me when it happened was I was, you know, in theory on the outside, highly performing. I'd actually started a business in my 20s, which was doing really well. Um, It was both profitable and also growing. But the problem was that, you know, no human being is invincible to endless work. And I think certainly as a young woman in that environment, I was putting undue pressure on myself. It wasn't anyone else necessarily putting additional pressure. It was it was me putting pressure on myself. And what happens when you burn out is the emotional implications in terms of not being able to get out of bed is often a symptom, feeling incredibly sluggish, fatigue, just never really getting energy in a normal way. And essentially from a chemical perspective, what I was beginning to learn was that's adrenals, that's your kind of stress hormones, that's adrenaline, cortisol, what was fascinating to me at the time was I had never learned about that. Mm. (laughs) I had never been told that these emotional symptoms of stress were a chemical response in your body that you can't get around. There's no avoiding it and trying to find solutions to be able to overcome it. Your chemical body is going to respond in whatever fight or flight response that is balanced for you. And over time, the more and more you essentially don't address stress, the more it compounds the problem. And then obviously the knock-on effect of that is other issues within your hormones because your hormones are one kind of beautiful balance and symphony within your body. And as soon as you over-index with one form, such as stress chemicals, you have then knock-on effects to things like sleep. So your sleep is a hormonal cycle. 
metabolism, because that's a hormonal cycle, and obviously menstruation, which in my case, and I think for women is, you know, it's not a good thing, but it's a helpful sign that something is really not right because your periods stop. And that was for me the signal but I wasn't really in any way tuned into my body or had any real education around the fact that my period stopping could be related to stress. Mm. This was in 2016. And, you know, this topic wasn't as newsworthy or headline mm. as, as it is now. The thing that shocked me the most was just how difficult it was to get any kind of diagnosis, even from doctors. Often you find that things that are problems for women, especially, are not necessarily diagnosable unless they have a pharmaceutical end. And, you know, stress is a symptomatic issue. And so therefore, what people were saying to me was, oh, you need to do this test, or it could be infertility, or it could be, you know, even more severe things. And I was filled with more fear, more stress, <laughs> and realized that the major thing for me was the privilege to have access to a nutritionist. And that was where the personal story really became part of a, a, an idea around how we change this cycle, because my personal story is not unique. <laughs> what was also really shocking to me was almost every single woman that I spoke to had a story that related to hormones in some way, not just period stopping and cycle stresses, but it could be, you know, oh, well, I'm suffering from endometriosis and no one really allows me to talk about it. And you have people now like Emma Barnett doing an amazing job of talking about, you know, her story and the experiences there. And, you know, these things are starting to become more mainstream. But the major thing is, how you actually understand the basics because <laughs> I think that for me was the missing link and why Moody was something that I became incredibly passionate about building was how do we just start from the beginning we think of hormones we think of them as in relation to periods pregnancy menopause things like that but obviously hormones are responsible for so much more in our body as you've already kind of alluded to insulin is a hormone thyroid stimulating hormones regulate your metabolism so hormones kind of like a catch-all term for lots and lots of different things can you tell us what a hormone is it's a chemical signal so i think and talk a lot in metaphors and that's what i use a lot within the book and i always think about our body as just like a pharmacy <laughs> mm. of drugs trying to use chemicals to be able to signal to our organs or our nervous system or our brain or whatever it is, what to do. So you have hormones, which also you have neurotransmitters and hormones. So you have your brain chemicals and you have your body chemicals. And they're essentially released in response to an action, something happening. And I think the easiest way to describe often where people understand it best is the fight or flight response. Yeah. You see something that could be fearful for every person that's going to be slightly different in a modern age where we're not trying to kind of survive from saber-toothed tigers, we're actually in a, a hyper kind of reality in which we live. So we've adopted new fears and new stresses, but the chemical response is still the same. I think in the, in the way that you think about your glands, so you talked about thyroid, you have glands which are almost the gatekeepers to each of those chemicals. So your endocrine system, which is the series of glands that are from top to bottom of your body, those are the kind of administration points of your of your hormones and ovulation and your menstrual cycle that is obviously centered around your ovarian cycle that's one area of your body but what we're not really given information on is all the other glands and how all the other things fit in and you mentioned metabolism and insulin you know we we know the words but often when you ask people how it works couldn't necessarily answer that question mm. which I also find quite fascinating when we think about I could probably tell you more about World War II <laughs> five years ago <laughs> than I could about my body yeah and that's quite weird I could tell you more Amy about the fictional character Billy Burkett uh, a World War One <laughs> soldier whose diary I had to write in year nine than I could about the functioning of my own body <laughs> seriously so I had a baby eight months ago so hormones have become a um I don't know something I thought about a lot more and when you have a baby what people don't tell you is that like it just everything then goes wrong with your body afterwards just everything goes to shit so all sorts of things going on now like dodgy thyroid so yeah coming back to the point about you know the, the way that we think about hormones in relation to like typically female experiences I guess of course that's just not the case hormones affect men too yeah, yeah. so why are they um, thought of as such a sort of female thing men have hormone cycles too but interestingly if we look at history you've got 
you know, the way that hormones were kind of really researched and discovered in kind of the early 20th century, they were actually originally used to try and prove dominance in masculinity because testosterone as a hormone was something which demonstrated strength and virality. And then estrogen was something that evoked emotion, cycles, menopause. So it was classified as kind of almost like the hysterical hormone. And I think what we forget is that society plays such an important role and anthropology in, in, our, in our understanding of ourselves. And science is not biased from societal structures. And men arguably have ignored hormones for however long because they've focused on virality and the most research that's really done for men on hormones is on erectile dysfunction and hair loss which says quite a lot about where the research has been focused and for what kind of bias whereas interestingly as we shift from you know a society that's been very focused on this idea of you know strength and logic and you know and, and power to emotional intelligence and emotional cues and more empathy within how we operate because arguably technologies do a lot of the logic that very kind of male structures or ma masculine, I should say, structures have, have worked in before. So now all this research that was done to essentially medicate women around menopause or around contraceptives is suddenly incredibly powerful for us to understand ourselves. But men are almost a decade behind, or if not a century behind, in terms of the research and understanding around the emotional implications of testosterone on their daily lives. Because we know a lot about how testosterone affects men in terms of different levels. What we don't know is, you know, is it changing on a, on a kind of daily, monthly basis around emotional cues or signals that we're not looking at? We know that testosterone cycles for men are 24 hours. So they reset every 24 hours, whereas women's estrogen cycles operate around your menstrual cycle, which obviously has a beginning and end with bleed. So, yeah, it's, it's almost this whole <laughs> missing area of science because it's been essentially just misunderstood and overlooked as something that wasn't necessarily useful for men to understand. So... So you kind of touched on this yeah. already in, in some of the stuff you've said, but I found this like absolutely fascinating. And when you kind of break it down in the book, it makes sense. But I just never thought of it like this before. So you talk about hormonal memory pathways almost. Basically, intuition is related to your hormones. Can you explain that a little bit? Like with anything, as I said about fight or flight, your brain and your body respond as one everyone's slightly different in their experiences and our responses to different things will be based on our personal experiences so some people certain things will be more stressful than others and you know that's because your hormone responses are triggered by memory so it's really about thinking around how your hormones when you begin to read triggers you can begin to understand and really start to understand how to especially related to things like stress and and connected to things like sleep cycles if you can identify what the trigger points are within your day um, you can start to address the wind down and the change and it's it's about creating new pathways around how to reduce cortisol reduce adrenaline and i think one of the kind of major uh, themes that i tried to bring through in the book was for every stressful hormone kind of scenario you also have happy hormones so our body has this antidote within itself in serotonin oxytocin, dopamine, and all these amazing chemicals that help bring our bodies back down to earth to connect with other people, to feel joy, to feel happiness. And how you understand the relationship between those things is again a pathway. So the other uh, relationship I talk about, which is a personal one, is cake. So I love cake. I'm <laughs> with <evokes> you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I have met a few people that don't love cake. And Who doesn't love incredibly cake? Fascinating. Monsters. <laughs> yeah, but even people that don't have a sweet tooth to say often say that you know cake is something that they would they would enjoy at certain celebrations because it's synonymous with happiness. It's synonymous with you know parties. You know every festival, every kind of moment celebration. So that kind of often is also a relationship that we have to how to almost get to our happy hormones is do something that we know is synonymous with happiness the problem with something like cake which i do also talk about is <laughs> not something you should be doing every day wow <laughs> um i know but only because i mean there are all kinds of cake so there are different ways in which you can structure that but 
it's not using something like that as a kind of way to feel happy isn't a sustainable methodology for happiness, but it is a way to access happy hormones. I also talk about masturbation, which is actually on par when they look at neurological pathways and patterns as well in your body. Meditative states and masturbation are very much aligned. So that also has happiness associated in terms of like a, a kind of release. Um, and, you know, I... I do meditate, but I'm not in any way any kind of consistent meditator. Mm. And I find it very difficult, actually, to sit in any kind of state of meditation for long periods of time. And I know it's a, a very important practice. I can't but do it at all. Hard. At all. It's really hard. Yeah. Masturbating <laughs> is much easier, to be fair. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they're the memory. The, my point back to memory is that there are all these kind of pathways and memory kind of structures that are associated to chemical responses good and bad and when we can start to understand those we can start to tune into the things that we actually have access to to solve a problem quickly with with our chemicals the challenge with something like cake also is insulin which interestingly i do talk about so i i I actually had hypnotherapy which says everything about uh my own kind of vices but i can you eat cake anymore then or if you did you have to go cold turkey or have you just sort of managed to get it down to a decent acceptable kind of level it was it was a decent, acceptable level. Um, it was actually when I was, tra- I found when I was traveling a lot, I did two years when I was first fundraising for Moody, I traveled a lot to America and I was back and forth between the states. And so the problem for me was traveling all the time, feeling far away from home. And I would just eat, I would just eat essentially a birthday cake every day. And, and I kept coming back to London being like, I just can't work out why I'm getting so uncomfortable in these trousers (laughs) and realized actually I was I was using cake as a a way of connecting with nostalgia with happy memories and it was my kind of escapism and I realized I needed to find some slightly more low calorie escapism I have many routes to happiness now what does the app actually do so the app is a daily hormone forecast so with Women, where we focused in the first phase on women in terms of monthly cycles, both regular and irregular. And what it does is it looks at how it can give you a forecast of what you might be feeling based on the hormones that are in play. That's based on macro science and data that we have from decades of research, along with our own research and own data sets around users that have shared with us how they do feel within those phases. So the technology is essentially creating a reflection of data back to you. The reason that that's really, really important to me is that when I was working in communication previously, it was all about taking data and helping use it to understand how to market things to people. And, you know, don't get me wrong, like I understand how that's powerful, but I also found myself in this really moral contentious space where Mm. I felt it was more important for me to understand the information about myself than for a brand to harvest that information and have it. I was more fascinated by the data on myself in those environments and felt that if we were able to create something that reflected data back to people in a useful and and structured way, we could help completely transform someone's daily experience of who they are. So it's a forecasting tool, but it's also a tracking tool. So rather than focusing on fertility or contraception, it focuses on the kinds of things that in your day, both morning and evening, might be helpful to optimize your hormones. So diet, exercise, mindfulness, and it's essentially a one-stop shop for mental, physical health, helping you better understand how it works for you. The digital era, because you you do a lot of other things, you know, you're you're very successful in in the business world and in, in what you do. In particular, digital communications is sort of where you started, right? And obviously now you have the Moody Month app. Because we talk a lot about how digital landscapes remove gatekeepers so they've given demographics other than the dominant demographics i guess of like white middle class they've given them more opportunities to kind of flourish in other areas like the arts for example music writing so i wondered if it's done the same in health because as you discuss in the book and as you talked about before doctors and medical research comes with a kind of inherent bias because the people traditionally who've been doing the research are men the people who have traditionally been the doctors have been men so i wondered like what kind of tangible benefits tech could offer to our lives in in a sort of health perspective i think it's an important question because i think there's a lot of contention with technology the the thing for me with technology around how it allows for more voices to become present is actually just through information and knowledge that is about 
distributing information at scale. So there are two vehicles really for me that I've been able to do that. Writing the book is another vehicle. Technology doesn't offer all the answers, you know, when you're mm-hmm. thinking about how you deliver. And this was actually one of the reasons that I thought it was important to write the book was when building the technology, we, we did have to have a very clear focus and we did start and have focused on menstruation as our first entry level into how you understand the phases of your cycle, your daily changes, and then encouraging you to better understand patterns outside of that by using technology to to reflect patterns essentially back to you. That does allow for women to have more access to information. We've made it an accessible price point, for example. It's the tracking technology is always free, and then we've built a business model about recommendations. However, you still don't get to explain to someone how a full spectrum hormone cycle works and how their endocrine system works. (laughs) That really comes from publishing and and books and more longer form content. So I think technology has a role to play in disrupting access to information, but I do think there are so many other important vehicles and, and channels to be able to make sure that we have as much research happening and re-education because technology proves there's a market need and want for more information about hormones which then means that more research will be done in that space so there's a kind of cyclical effect that also happens off the back of how technology when it's successful certainly both in a financial way and also in a scale way helps people realize that (laughs) things are important to look at well fortunately someone's written a book about all this haven't they amy (laughs) yeah moody a woman's 21st century hormone guide is available on march the 4th where can we find you on the socials as it were to uh, keep up with what you're doing because i imagine all sorts of exciting things absolutely so our main platform is moody month so that's just at moody month across all channels and then i'm going to be keeping up with book stuff on my own channels as well which is amy t story and that's across all channels as well. Amy, thank you so much. My oh, pleasure. It was really great to speak. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what film had a swimming in morally murky toilet water this week? Oh, God. Which film made me do a proper reach that I had to go to the bathroom in case I was a little bit sick? I love that you pronounce it reach instead of retch. Is that a, a, a Newport Pagnell thing? Well, that's how my parents pronounce it, which would suggest it's a London or an Irish thing. I don't okay. know. Interesting. This week we watched 1996's Train Spotting, released this very day in 1996, making it 25. How old are we? We're older than 25. Uh, Yeah, it was the year I went to university, so it's very depressing. Please carry on talking. (laughs) Based on the book by Irvin Welsh and the second film directed by Danny Boyle, whose debut, Shallow Grave, won the BAFTA for Best British Film and who went on to win the Best Director Oscar for Slumdog Millionaire and direct the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics. Made for £1.5 million, almost half as much again was put into Trainspotting's promotion, which was literally everywhere in January and February 1996, most notably its famous line-up poster, which has been much copied, alluded to and parodied over the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. It was on my university wall. There you go. It was money well spent, though, based on the cost-to-return ratio... Trainspotting was the most profitable film of 1996. Its heavy use of Britpop tunes reminds you firmly of its position at the apex of, and I'm guys, I'm sorry for bringing it up, Cool Britannia. <laughs> Mickey, want to guess what album was number one when Trainspotting was in cinemas? What album was number one in 96? Was it, um, What's the Story? It absolutely was. Yes. Well done. I love it when that happens because I hate it when I say that and then you and Jen say 20 or 30 things <laughs> and then I cut it down to two and we go, okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> the soundtrack is consistently voted one of the best movie soundtracks ever made and made Lust for Life a staple of Wednesday night indie discos for the remainder of the 1990s. Universally praised on release, Trainspotting still regularly makes it into top 10 lists of the best British films and has 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. It made stars out of most of its stars to some degree or another, notably Ewan McGregor, Ewan Bremner, Kevin McKidd and Johnny Lee Miller, and propelled 
then unknown Kelly MacDonald into the public eye. It also features a bevy of other rock-solid Scottish actors, including Shirley Henderson, Peter Mullen and James Cosmo. Robert Carlyle was, it's worth reminding everyone, already pretty famous because as well as playing mustachioed psychopath Begbie on the big screen, he could also be found wandering round solving crime with his wee dog as Hamish Macbeth on BBC One. Was it post-Hamish Macbeth? It was mid-Hamish Macbeth. Was it pre-Cracker? It was post-Cracker. Thanks. Yeah. So, what's the plot? For anyone who's been in a drug-induced coma for the past 25 years, sadly I haven't, although God knows <laughs> I've tried. You have been trying. <laughs> Renton, played by Ewan McGregor, is a 20-something heroin addict living in Edinburgh. 26, specifically. Who attempts to kick the brown after a series of life-changing and life-threatening events. His friends, who really test the boundaries of what that word means, yeah. variously join in, fuck it up, die, bring troubles to his literal door. In short, whatever it is you think of when I say the word shit, it very much happens (laughs) in this film. So that's enough from me. I thought I'd start off by saying, we did talk about this briefly yesterday. I enjoyed this way more than I was expecting to. And I say that not because I don't think Trainspotting is a good film, but because it's so intrinsically linked with that arse-clenching tweeness of that Brit-pop Tony Blair thing that I thought that might impact on my opinion of it a little bit. Interesting. And it didn't. When did you last see it before you watched it yesterday? Probably, I would say probably 10 years ago. Okay. At least. I saw it the first time I saw it, because that promotion worked. I saw it the night it came out in a cinema. Mm -hmm. And I probably saw it half a dozen times in the next five years. And then, no, I haven't watched it for a long time. And it really is, like, the handheld cameras, the jump cuts, the narration, the fact that they will tell four stories simultaneously. I mean, it's like a proper masterclass in getting information over quickly. I've watched it much more recently than yesterday and also watched it yesterday. Uh, Hilariously, Gary said, I think you've got this on DVD. And I said, no, I had this on VHS, which I watched a lot. And so I've seen it loads of times. So I wasn't surprised at how much I enjoyed it and how much of a brilliant film it is and how fucking funny it is. But what always surprises me with Train Spotting is that I forget about half of the film. I just forget yeah. about Begbie and Sick Boy turning up on his doorstep every time. Yeah. It's that key yeah. half, the first half in Edinburgh, that I think is just embedded in people of our ages' minds forever. Yeah, I think so. I had completely forgotten that weird London montage. Like, that was... <laughs> well, the, that's the montage you... that made me want to move to London, Hannah. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, just kids covered in pigeons and double-decker buses. Count me in. Where's my But I think there's something in it that's poking at that, though. I feel like... I know that the opinion, and I know it's the opinion that you have, that it's it's to do with making train spotting a bit more viable for the American market. But I think there's something in the way that people in London think people outside of London see London. And I feel like that that's kind of it. For people who probably have been to London maybe half a dozen times in their life, it seems that that's the image that all that tat is trying to sell to them. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many members of my family and me moving to London, it was like I was moving somewhere foreign. It's like I was was moving abroad. They've never been. They're probably not going to go. It's a dream. They're like, oh, one day we'll come to London. And it does feel as hard for them to get here as it would be for them to go to, you know, some sort of East African country. It just feels very other to them. Yeah. Um, And I think Danny Boyle captured that brilliantly. What you were saying about the way he tells stories, I think he is incredible. And he's also really good at making you feel a bit disorientated, like the rooms he uses. There's a whole scene in a round room and it's Mm. very clever and it's either shot from really high up or really low down. And you get in there and there's obviously the weird stuff where like Renton goes in the toilet and swims for a bit and the bit where he sinks into the ground. And then you just see it with the kind of almost coffin edge the whole time. Mm. But it's it's cleverer than that. Donny Boyle's very clever at making you feel a little bit sort of sick, a little bit dizzy while showing you things from a different angle. I think it's very clever. Yeah, it's full of rug pulls mm. sort of narratively yeah. as well. There's that lovely shot of Peter Mullen sitting on the curb 
would like rent and just lying in the road and you've been queued up to think that ambulance is coming for him and in the end they just sling him in the back of a taxi and just dump well him. he does say i'm going to call you a taxi but then the sirens kick off and you think is that what they call is that ambulance the slack for, yeah, yeah. Totally. no it's not i think it's really interesting what you said about their friendships because yeah it, it does feel like a really loose way of describing the way they are together but it's tackling of addiction is really interesting because it was accused a lot of glamorizing heroin and i don't think it glamorizes it at all it's a film that actually says to you if you take heroin your baby will die you will find yourself like doing disgusting things like fishing stuff out of toilets you might die you might go to prison the repercussions for taking heroin in this are huge all it does is show, attempt to show, I think, the very brutal, honest truth. But I, when I did that thing for Nakoa, when I did that live lunches for them, we actually talked about that when people were talking about how, like, how do you tell your kids not to get drunk? And you can't because it's fucking great. Mm-hmm. Heroin is fucking great. It's why people take it. It's that that fills it out. Because otherwise, why would these people be taking it? Your sympathy's not going to be with them, oddly. Yeah. So I think it makes them better rounded individuals. And I think also that ties into their friendship because, you know, people who aren't on heroin, like like Tommy and like Begbie, although Begbie I think is much more problematic than the, the lads on heroin. Absolutely. But they, as much as they judge them, they don't connect with them. And even though like Sick Boy's like a horrible friend, he understands. And so yeah. you keep him around. They're, they're, they're enablers. And they yeah. imbue that spirit of fun into something that even they all know is fucking them up and they keep going. Yeah. To me, the most interesting thing about watching this from the point of view of 25 years on, I mean, obviously I, I had seen it in the interim, is how little we are forward in the conversation that we're having about drugs in 25 yeah. years. That really did stagger me. I thought the way that people outside of the addict circle treated the addicts, like the way the taxi driver does just dump Renton on the pavement, we are still sold this. It's an individual's choice and as opposed to it's an illness, which, you know, of course there's an element of choice in that, but it is an illness. And I actually said I'd forgotten how lovely Renton's parents are. And like some of what yeah. they do is a bit misguided. But they're so lovely. They know their boys in there, and they're going to do what they can to to stick around. And obviously, a lot of people don't get that. It's undoubtedly there was because it was on that wave of Britpop, you know, just going to get rid of the Tories, you know, that whole massive wave. Because it was on that, it, it did pick up an element of cool. So it's undoubtedly there is an element of did train spotting make drugs cool well only if you were the sort of idiot that thought that that was cool yeah heroin chic was a thing before train spotting Mm -hmm. it was a thing it did exist before train spotting maybe train spotting fed into it but at the same point you know it was actually about being on heroin as opposed to looking like you're on heroin so what were they supposed to do Irvin welsh was a heroin addict he knew what he was Mm. talking about he'd lived in that world And it doesn't shy away from the really horrifically grim side of being an addict and what that entails to stay an addict and how hard it is to stop being an addict or to to get away from that addiction. Obviously, you're always an addict. But yeah, I think it it does not shy away from any of the horrors of it at all. The scene with the baby when little Dawn dies made it's made me cry every time I've watched Train Spotting. I think it's. So well done. I read a, a review, I think it was Robert Egbert, and he was he, he didn't get the, the baby thing. He didn't get it. He was like, oh, none of them care. It's like, they all care, but they do not know how to handle it. They have no, like, concept of how do we handle this apart from we just get fucked up and carry on like it's not happened. Yeah, in it, that's the worst hangover in the world, the one she's going to have when she wakes up and discovers her baby's dead for the second time. Yeah. That's, that's the biggest the worst. come down, isn't it? yeah. Of all, that's probably, I mean, yeah, a lot of brutal stuff happens in this. I mean, but like, as you say, I mean, Begbie is terrible. We were talking off mic about Taxi Driver, about men who turn in those really edgy performances. It's what all men are going for, basically, and only certain ones pull it off. De Niro in Taxi Driver, Eric Banner in Chopper, Stephen Graham in almost anything that he does, Brad Pitt in The Assassination of Jesse James, and Robert Carlyle here 
he's such a tiny, tiny, like nothing of him man, and yet he's fucking terrifying. I have met and so many Begbies though. Things. I have met so many Begbies. The worst thing that he does is glassing that girl, I think. And that scene is played for a joke. Who what, Oh when who, he throws his pint pot over lassie. the yeah. balcony. Yeah. You think that's the worst thing? I think it's I think the worst thing is when he glasses that man after they've made the deal. Maybe that's just because it's much more graphic and you see the glass go into this guy's chin and it's yeah. Every yeah, time I mean, every time horrible. he explodes, it is cringy and just horrible. I know someone who's been glassed and we did a thing in Standard Issue when we were a magazine. His mum runs a campaign, Marjorie Golding, she's called, to get glass out of pubs. Because, yes, glassing is fucking horrific. It is just the worst thing. So, yes, I would say the indiscriminate glassing of that girl, but also that bloke. Yeah, both absolutely fucking horrific. Like I say, but she's played for a joke. Her one is played for a joke. I think... I think. There's an element of it being played for laughs where they're just watching. But when you've got a friend like that, all you can do is appease them and just be quiet, which they do. They don't really encourage him. They just go silent. They don't stop him, which, you know, step in and stop him. You're going to get hit with a pool cue. You know, Tommy at one point says, I thought he was going to go for me. This is what actually happened. Yeah. I thought he was going to go for me. So it is, it's seeing their relationship. But I think that scene also shows that Begbie starts fights he doesn't just turn up and trouble you know happens he yeah. turns up and causes trouble because then he goes down he's like who's lost this girl i've no no well that's what i mean that's where out. i think that's the joke that is the joke but it's his character so yeah i agree i agree with you but i also think it's important to the story but yeah i see what you're saying shall we talk what about kelly mcdonald's him? character diane now i'd forgotten and i've watched this film so many times and I knew that she was a schoolgirl, and I thought, well, this is going to be interesting to talk about on Standard Issue, because obviously her and Renton uh, fuck. He doesn't know she's a schoolgirl, but then she turns up in her school uniform the next morning, and he's at a parent's house, and it's all a big shock to him and a big surprise. And ultimately, part and parcel of that, that failure for him is that he goes back to the the horse. <laughs> It made me laugh earlier when you called it the brown. Like, we're not okay yeah. with this lingo at all. Yeah, when he gets back on the horse. But it's so murky because she has agency the whole time. The decisions are hers. She then yeah. turns up at his flat. She doesn't tell him. She's in a nightclub and she does not look like a schoolgirl. And it's so morally murky because obviously I, I mean I don't think a girl of that age can consent and can have that agency but that is how it's played and you cannot deny that Diane has agency all the way through so I just like to point out it's written by a... a man and it's directed by a man and to me that makes it morally murky I don't think it's morally murky up to the point that she turns up to his flat again oh yeah and then it's totally like he knows and he goes we can't yeah. you're too young and she says to you're too young you're too young for what and then you see them naked together and he's absolutely made the choice that time there are a few dodgy sort of scenes around sex as well there's a bit where uh gail has got spud well spud is very 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 drunk and has passed out and she was all up for some sex he's passed out and she goes what am i missing out on and she takes his trousers off I mean, you could say she does get a comeuppance for that the next morning when she gets covered in his feces. But still, she shouldn't have gone where he didn't consent for her to go and he wasn't able to give consent. Yeah, agreed. In the back of my mind, I was going to be like, we were going to be having a conversation about how problematic the Kelly McDonald character yeah. was. And we're and not. We're not. Whether or not, like you say, that that's believable, that a girl would be that. It lets men forward. off the hook. To think that girls are like It does that. let men off the hook. There is also a class dynamic at play there. I, I found it quite interesting that there was, given that technology in it is so, I mean, 25 years old, so we're talking about videos, and yet still the fear of a sex tape becoming public mm -hmm. was a really big concern in this. Again, played played as a joke, really, when she has been violated, essentially. So has he, though. He has been violated. Yeah. I suppose that the joke is on the... It's, it is played as a joke, you're right. And it's it's really sad, actually, because when Renton steals that video and he swaps it out to pretend it's like the 100 greatest goals or whatever and he's stolen Tommy and Lisa's sex tape, that all leads to Tommy dying. That sets yeah. off the chain of events that means that Tommy tries drugs for the first time, contracts HIV 
becomes a junkie and he is he's the one that dies but yeah i think because it affects both the man and the woman neither of them have consented to have that tape taken yeah it does it's still played for laughs though i as well i found it interesting that that seems to be quite a modern preoccupation and it clearly isn't necessarily the modern preoccupation it's obviously a lot easier for it to happen to you now and a lot worse but yeah. As someone who's never made a sex tape, I'd never really considered the ramifications. Well, I think of I it. I think, you know, again, same, I haven't made a sex tape either, but I think homemade grumble biz has been happening for as as long as you've yeah. been able to make homemade grumble biz, to be honest. <laughs> There's a couple of other things that I thought we should mention, one of which was the uh the Adidas Tastic fashion. Um, it's cool, isn't it? Is, it is cool. <laughs> yeah. And how we we had a brief conversation yesterday about how Hugh McGregor became a sex symbol after this, and you couldn't quite understand it. It's so it's so weird. Like he's, I've dated a few Scottish men, and he's got a very Scottish face. So there's there's something there. Like when he's cleaned up a bit, and he's looking in the mirror just before he he wakes up, and it's when he's going to steal the money. He drinks the water, and he's cleaner. And he looks like literally clean. And like there's scenes where he's with Kelly MacDonald and I'm like, he looks like he smells terrible, mate. But yeah. And yet that was the look that kind of took off, wasn't it? Incredibly skinny yeah. man looking like Crop he's off his face at a nightclub. Yeah, Crop but, t-shirt. But there's just one glimpse and I thought, oh, maybe I can see it. But yeah, the whole time I'm like, how did this make him a massive sex symbol? Because he looks poorly. He looks, he doesn't look well. I don't get it. I have to say I don't get it looking ahead now, but I did have some muscle memory of remembering <laughs> that I thought Hugh and McGregor was really hot when he was in that nightclub. So it must have I must have at some point. Well if you think that. of Ewan McGregor and you get a little twinge in your bits, do you also hear lager, 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 lager? <laughs> yeah. I feel my t shirt rising up. Um, <laughs> Listeners, it's happening. Uh, the other thing worth mentioning is the script, which is so soundbitey, which I'm never quite sure if that's a good idea, because then it just becomes a film that is infinitely quoted and that drives you mad. But what I will say is the line, it's easy to be philosophical when it's some other poor cunt with shite for blood, is chef's kiss beauty. And that is a direct pull from the book. That is Irving yeah. Welsh's line. Because actually, like the book, have you read it? Oh my God, like after I saw the film probably 20, 25 years ago. So I remember virtually nothing. But the vernacular in it is so like impenetrable at first. You have to really tune in, which is a bit like when I speak to my mate from Paisley. I'm like, just talk to me about the weather while I get acclimatised, which Mm. is absolutely on me, not him. But yeah, that book, you have to really tune in. So they've made it. I do think Trainspot in the film is very clever. They've, they've stayed very true to Irvin Welsh's story and his characters and his language whilst making it that people across the world can watch it. Mm. Yeah, I feel like this is largely a formality, but we will do it. Mickey, Trainspotting, rated or dated? It's fucking dancer. It's rated. <laughs> yeah, it is rated. What are we watching next time if we're not watching Hamish Macbeth? We're not watching Hamish Macbeth, but it's very similar. We're going to watch the Coen Brothers Fargo, which is also Ooh. 25 years old. And I know for a fact Jen has never watched. Madness. She'll be back next week Madness. and she's never watched it. So I'd be interested because I don't think she's actually seen a Coen Brothers film at all. Surely everyone has seen The Big Lebowski, but we'll find out next week. Yeah, she's been in a heroin-induced coma for the past 25 years. When she comes splashing up out of the toilet, we'll get her views. Standard Issue for All Women.